good morning. If I could have you turn in your Bibles to the book of John this morning. We'll be in chapter 1. Our missionary this morning who we're praying for is uh, Jeff and Roxanne Johnson. Now, they're with Frontiers Missions Organization, and they uh, currently they live in Arizona, but what they do is they travel nine months out of the year, mostly to Middle Eastern countries, and they help those who are reaching those countries that um, are kind of trapped in Islam. And the Lord has used this couple in, in a lot of mighty ways, and they've dodged a lot of bullets in reality in their ministry, and they've lived in a number of countries and been kicked out of a number of countries um, because of their faith in Christ. So let's lift them up. Father, we thank you for Jeff and Roxanne Johnson. Lord, we thank you how you've uh, used them to reach those, Lord, who are lost in Islam. Father, we pray that you would use them to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, Lord. He's much more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And I pray, Father, that as they help those other missionaries on the field, that you'd give them great wisdom and great insight, Father, how to encourage them. I pray that you protect them, Father, as they serve in a number of Middle Eastern countries. And Lord, that the gospel would spread. Pray, Father, that you would be glorified in it. And Father, we give you our hearts this morning as the Word of God is brought before us. Lord, you have always had a plan, the redemptive plan. And Father, I pray that it would just be clear to us this morning. And Lord, I would ask that, uh, that you would help us to see how we are involved in this plan and how all of it, Father, centers on Christ. And Lord, so I pray that you would speak to us clearly by your Word. Open our hearts to it this morning in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we'll be in the book of John, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 18 this morning. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. You know, when John wrote this, this particular letter, he had two main purposes. The first purpose was so that people would understand that Jesus is so much more than just some religious figure, just some great teacher. Jesus truly is the Son of God, God the Son. And his second purpose is not only that they would realize that He is the true Son of God, but then in realizing that they would come to faith, they would repent and turn to Christ. Now, John told us this. I shared this last week. I'll share it again. He, he gives the reason that he wrote this letter at the end of the book in John chapter 20, verse 31. This is what he says. He says, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so to fulfill these two purposes, he begins this letter, as we saw last week, by stating that Jesus truly is God. Let me read you verses 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we saw last week, Jesus really kind of drive home this point that Jesus is God and, and, and that He's God in the flesh. And not only is He God in the flesh, but also all life is in Him, both physical and spiritual life. Verses 4 and 5 says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend Him. Jesus speaks, I mean, John speaks of Jesus as the light. Because Jesus is the Holy One, the One over all, and darkness will not overcome Him, it means. He, 
he, he, he is who he is. And so John's heart, his purpose in writing this book in the beginning is to share with us, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. He's come here. And now what John's going to do for us this morning in this section in verses 6 through 18, he's going to help us understand that this has always been God's plan, that God has this redemptive plan for mankind. The Bible is not the account of man seeking God, but it is God seeking to redeem man. The Bible records the amazing reality that mankind was destined for judgment. Now, remember in the garden, God gave one command to Adam. He told Adam this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And in that day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And we know the story. Adam and Eve, they ate from that tree. This plunged mankind into judgment. They suddenly found themselves without hope, we thought. But it is God who brought hope. God spoke to them in the garden. And God spoke and He gave a a prophecy in in Genesis chapter 3 about what He was going to do. Let me read to you that. I'm I'm doing this as a build-up, so hang on. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Speaking to, to the devil, to the serpent, he says he's going to put enmity between her seed and, and your seed. From this, we know that God made a promise here, that in the future, there's a coming one from the woman's seed, and he's going to do damage to the devil's head. Literally, he's going to crush his head. He's going to, he's going to put an end to the devil's ways. But he's going to be hurt. He's going to be bruised in the heel. We know that's Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. But it wasn't a permanent death. It was resurrection. And so this first promise that he makes in Genesis 3.15, the whole rest of the Bible is him laying out this redemptive plan. And we're going to see John speak about that this morning. So this morning, John the Apostle will speak what God does to fulfill His redemptive plan. We're going to take this in section. Let's read verses 6 through 8 of John chapter 1. He says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So what does God do to fulfill His redemptive plan? The first thing we see is that God sends witnesses to announce His plan of redemption. God sends witnesses to announce His plan of redemption. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets of God called to announce the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, God throughout all of history has been announcing that He would send the Messiah. John the Baptist had a a divine commission from God And he is the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah as the forerunner. Now, Isaiah predicted that there was going to be a forerunner, one right before the Messiah came that would announce his coming. John is that man. As a matter of fact, John, speaking about himself in Matthew chapter 3, says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, where he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And we know that John lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. 
he came before Jesus and he came to announce his arrival. And so what John the Apostle says here in verse 6, he says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He's speaking about John the Baptist. Now, there came, could be better translated, there appeared. And this indicates kind of a shift here. John had just been speaking about Jesus as the heavenly word, and now he takes a shift, and he begins to speak about when Jesus is here on earth, there's going to be this forerunner. That forerunner is John, and we know him as John the Baptist. By the way, when John the Apostle writes the name John, he's never speaking about himself in this letter. He's always speaking about John the Baptist. And this phrase, sent from God, it confirms that John's role He has this role as as a prophet, as a herald, one who's going to announce this miraculous birth of the Savior of the world. Now, we know that that John the Baptist was sent because that was also prophesied to his parents. Zacharias, he was in the temple, he was serving the Lord as a priest, and an angel of the Lord came to him. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, this is what the angel tells him. He says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name of John. And in verse 17, it says, and he will be a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the heart of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient, the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He was that forerunner. He was that announcer. And it says in verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light. And we saw already that John the apostle called Jesus the light. And so it's plain here that that he came as a witness to testify. He is the one that, that comes to announce this coming Messiah to point that God's plan is being fulfilled. Now, if you look and scroll down and look at verses 26 through 29 in John chapter 1, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. It is he who comes after me in the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's that announcer. He's the prophet. There had not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years, and suddenly John the Baptist is there. He's announcing that this Messiah has come. And so the the apostle John, he writes first, Jesus is God, and all of a sudden he points to him by saying, hey, John the Baptist, he's the one witnessing. He's the one pointing. He is God. Now, he uses those words, testify and witness. It's kind of the same words he's used as one who's in a courtroom making a testimony. And he does that to make us know that John the Baptist's words, that they're, they're, they're trustworthy, they're reliable. And John the Baptist was sent by God to testify about the light. And when we saw Jesus called the light, we understood that he is the holy one among men. So he's called the light. And when the light comes in, what does it do? It exposes darkness. John is the one pointing to Jesus to say he is the one that will will expose darkness. And the reason that John the Baptist was testifying about Jesus, the purpose that he's doing that, look at verse 7, is so that all might believe through him. The reason John came was so that when Jesus came and people realized that this is the Messiah, they might believe and they might repent and they might come to faith. 
John is announcing this to the people of Israel. He's here. The Messiah is finally here, that long-awaited one. No prophet for over 400 years. Suddenly he's here. And he's doing this as a witness so that people would come to faith in Christ. And not only in God's redemptive plan did he have a forerunner, but he has had witnesses from that point on. Are you that witness? Because we're all called to be witnesses of Christ. That's the mandate. We can't wiggle out of this one. It's for all believers. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the other parts of the world. That's us. We're all the other parts of the world. You know Christ because someone or somehow you heard the word of Christ. We're all called to be this witness. Now, the reason from this pulpit, both Pastor Neil and myself have been encouraging you time and time again to share Christ is because people come to Christ when they hear the truth of the gospel. Now, you also hear us say, well, if you can't tell them, then bring them. Now, that's, we don't tell you to bring people here so that we can fill the pew, so we can have people in the seats. We tell you to bring them so that they can hear the gospel, that they might be saved. The desire of, a, of being a witness, if you don't know how to share it, bring them somewhere where they can hear it. The idea is that that is the goal. That is, God's redemptive plan is still on the move. There are still people coming into the kingdom of God, and this was John the Baptist's job. He was a, a man sent from God to be a witness, to testify of who Jesus is, and we are people of God sent by God to be a witness, to testify who Jesus is. Now, it says here in verse 8 that he was not the light, but he was called to testify about the light. So that's very clear. He's not the Christ. And, and John was the first one to say that himself. In John chapter 3, verse 28, he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I've been sent ahead of him. And I think what happens is it's easy for people to get enamored with the person who's giving the message and so it's very important and incumbent upon the person that's giving the message of Christ that that message never points to them. It's always pointing to Christ. As a person that proclaims the gospel, for me, for you, we're always to point to Him. It's never to be, say, hey, look at me. We got nothing. He's got everything. And so John the Baptist is doing that. As a matter of fact, what did John say? He says, I must decrease. Why? Because he must increase. That was the message of John. And that's the same message for you and I. Jesus is the light. He is the one that we're about. And by the way, without Jesus, we can do nothing. He is the vine. We are the branches. Without that abiding in Him, we have nothing that we can give. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. John understood this part. John, John the Baptist knew that he was part of his redemptive plan. He was integrated in by God, called by God. Not only was he saved, but he was saved for a purpose. And that's so important for us to understand that if you know Christ, you're saved for a purpose. And it is to proclaim and spread that gospel. You know, I was trying to remember this week, the first time I think I actually heard the gospel, and I think I nailed it down. I think I was around 10 years old. I was at my house. I was a latchkey kid. My parents had been divorced. 
My brother, Rick, and I, we would go home from school, and my brother oftentimes would leave, and so often I was left home alone. And I remember there was one day after school, I was sitting there, it was probably around three or four in the afternoon, and there was a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and there was a young man there with a Bible in his hand. I'm pretty sure he wasn't Mormon, because he was by himself, and he had a real Bible, and he began to talk to me about Jesus. And I remember talking to him, and I remember I felt kind of that strange warmness, like I wanted to know more. I don't know if I prayed the sinner's prayer. I really don't remember that part, but I do know it stirred me. And I thought about it. You know what? That was a seed that was planted. Now, it didn't germinate for 20 years. I didn't become a believer or a follower of Christ until I was 30. But that young man planted something that stuck. It stayed with me. And 20 years later, that grew in me and has been producing fruit ever since. Guys, we're not called to to just share and have to always bring people in, but we are called to share the Word of God. That's why we we, we had Greg up here and Casey up here to speak about the goal of evangelism. The goal of evangelism, what it really is, is that we're training people to know how to share Christ, to, to speak the Word of God so that it makes sense. Now, the reason we have something called smilers is that's exactly what we're looking for, is people who are willing to go out but you're not sure how to share the gospel and we'll have teams together where there'll be people that do know how to share the gospel, but they need people that, that smile, but not only smile, they pray. Now, pray with your eyes open when you're talking to people, but you, you smile and you pray and you're just warm and you're inviting and, and you learn how to share the gospel. I'd really encourage you to become a part. If you thought, you know, I'd love to do that, but I just don't know how, that's the ministry for you. Sign up for that. So what does God do to fulfill His redemptive plan? God sends witnesses to announce His plan of redemption. That's the first thing. There's a second thing. God calls for response to His plan of redemption. God calls for response to His plan of redemption. Now, the offer of forgiveness only comes through Jesus Christ. And when the offer is made, there's there's an opportunity at that point to respond. Those that respond in faith and repentance, they receive Christ and they find forgiveness. Those that reject it do not find forgiveness, but they will find themselves under judgment. Look at verses 9 through 13. It says, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now he begins here in verse 9 with, there was the true light which which coming into the world, it enlightens every man. Now we understand again that the true light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And John says that it enlightens every man. So what does light do when it comes into a dark room? It, it illuminates it it, it, it. it takes out the darkness. It exposes what's in the room. And that's exactly what Christ does. But Christ is no longer here in bodily form. So guess what? You and me, we're lights for Christ's sake. And when we go out into the world, when we go out into a dark place, we bring the light of Christ with us. When Jesus Christ came into the world... He was a light such as the world had never seen, and men hated him. Why? Because men loved darkness rather than light. 
And when Christ came, he exposed the darkness of men's heart. He exposed the, the sin that dwells within us. Jesus exposes darkness. If you will allow the, the light of Christ to shine through you, you will be used by God to help people get free from darkness. You see, the problem is with men's hearts. Without Christ, your heart is dark, 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 very black. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, I mean, I'm not that bad. I mean, I look at my neighbor. I mean, oh my God, my neighbor's really bad. I know that they cheated on their taxes. And I know, and I know that my neighbor, they party all the time. And you know what? My neighbor, they watch R-rated movies. They do. I don't do any of that stuff. When we do that kind of comparison where we can compare Joe versus Mark or, or maybe Bill versus Tim, you know, we can make those kind of comparisons. But when you compare who you are before Christ, guys, you have nothing. Your heart is as black as black can be. But when Christ comes in, He brings the light of Christ with Him. And he changes who you are. As a matter of fact, if you're depending on being right with God by what you do or what you say or how you behave, the Bible teaches that your works are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. But when the light of Christ shines on you, it changes everything. Now, John says here, he uses the word world. That's the Greek word cosmos. And it has kind of three meanings when you look at that. One, it means the world, the globe, the, our planet. It can mean humanity kind of in general, but I think what he's speaking about here, it's the evil system within the world. I think he's talking about that here. John liked to use this term world a lot, speaking about the evil world system. In John 7, 7, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And as Christians, we're in the world, but we're not to be part of the world. And even though Jesus is no longer here, he is reflected through us to the world. And the light of Christ, it dwells in you. This is why in Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he died for me. This light of Christ, this him dwelling within us, we take this wherever we go and we impact others with it. As a matter of fact, Jesus, he was speaking to some non-believers. This is what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. I'm sorry, he's speaking to believers. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. Now, speaking to non-believers, he said this. He said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. You and I are sons and daughters of the light if you know Jesus Christ. And so wherever we go, we bring that with us. If your life reflects darkness, something is way wrong with your walk with Christ. If people look at you and they don't know that you at all know Christ, something's up with that. If you can say, I love Christ, but yet you live in darkness, there is something really wrong with that. You have to go as far to say, is it even true? If that's you, you must repent. You must turn and say, Lord, forgive me. 
Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God. And our lives are to reflect the goodness in the light of Christ to others. It says he enlightens every man. But the sad thing is, is not everyone will believe, will they? Look at verse 10. It said he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The NIV says it did not recognize him. Same kind of an idea. So even though Jesus Christ is the true light and he was in the world, the world rejected him. When Jesus Christ was here, he did amazing miracles. He did, he did amazing things to show that he was the coming Messiah. But yet the world rejected him. One commentator said that the creator of the world became its savior, but the world rejected him and thus did not know him in a saving way. The best known person ever known in history actually is Jesus Christ. He's known in the West, he's known in the East, he's known throughout the globe, but still, even today, even though he is so well known and his miracles are spoken of and the truth about him is made clear, he still is rejected. And this points to the fact that men's heart are wicked, that they're depraved, that they're lost in sin. This is why the plan of redemption is entirely of God. It's credited to God. Salvation is monergistic. Mono means one. It's all of God. We get no credit. There is no work you can do. Nothing that you do can earn salvation. Now, sanctification, once you come to know Christ, is synergistic. It's, it's us working with God through the work of the Holy Spirit and His Scriptures. But natural man, he has no ability to seek after God. He does not desire God. It is God who seeks after him. After the fall in Genesis chapter 3, it was God who instituted the saving plan. Adam and Eve were the only people besides Christ, guys, who had an actual free will. Everyone else's will is hindered by sin. Now, God made a covenant of works with Adam. He had absolute freedom either to obey or disobey. And we understand that Adam disobeyed God. This put every other person under sin, deep depravity. And when they disobeyed and they ate of the fruit, all their descendants, including us, are sinful. The natural man is a sinner at the very heart and the root. They are deeply flawed. Their will is sinful and their will is directed by their sin. Titus 3.3 puts it like this. Speaking of the non-believer, it says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The natural man is a slave to sin, and that impacts the will. They have no desire for God. Romans 1 says they're haters of God. So God had to institute a saving plan, and this was done in spite of man's sin, in spite of man's pride, in spite of man's rebellion. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they heard God's voice, and what did they do? They hid. They hid out of fear and shame, and it was God who sought them out, and it was God who called after them. And guys, the same thing happens today. 
It is God who seeks out the non-believer, and it is God who calls the non-believer. This is the plan of redemption. It is God who created it. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before the world was even created, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had already come up with the redemptive plan. They saw how dark the heart of man was. And this is the message of the whole Bible. The gracious action on the part of God who does not turn his back on the disobedient and rebellious man, but instead pursues him. God is not passive. He is active. He is constantly pursuing the lost sinner. He is constantly calling out by the grace of God, repent, come to me. And it's not because of man who he is. It is because of the love of God for his creation. Man cannot merit it. He cannot earn it. All of redemption is of God. We simply respond to the gift that's offered. And this is the tragedy with Israel. Jesus came at the appointed time. He was that long-awaited Messiah. He is God in the flesh He is that act of redemption given for them, but they did not know him and they did not receive him. Look at verse 11. It says, he came to his own and those who were his own, they did not receive him. And we know Jesus was Jewish. He came from the line of David, both on his mother's side, Mary, and on his stepfather's side, Joseph. He came to his people. He came into Jerusalem, but they didn't recognize him. The Jews had waited for centuries. There was the forerunner. He had come. Finally, that last Old Testament prophet is prophesying about Jesus. He literally is saying, that is he. It's not me. It's him. But yet they did not receive him. You know what this is like? Just like their ancestors. Their ancestor did the same thing. They always rejected the men sent by God. It's interesting because Jesus said, if you search the scriptures, they speak of me. They should have known him. Because the Old Testament spoke very clearly of who Jesus is. And instead of receiving him, they crucified him. And instead of putting a crown of gold on his head, they put a crown of thorns on his head. But this is not surprising because throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they always rejected what God had for them. If you remember Moses, right, when God freed the people of Israel from captivity, they had to stay in the desert for 40 years because of their rebellious and hard hearts. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was speaking to Judah. He pleaded with him, please turn and repent. But listen to their response to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 44, verses 16 and 17. This is the people speaking to him. They said, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you, but rather we will certainly carry out the word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. And on and on I could go about Israel. Their hearts were rebellious. Their hearts were dark. Their hearts were hard. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but surely there's got to be... You know, some kind of an excuse for Israel, there is no excuse. It was made plain to them time and time again by the prophets. First, 
They had the prophecies given to them of the coming Messiah. They should have known. Hundreds of them about Jesus were prophesied, particularly of his suffering and his death, both in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Guys, we've been given not only the Old Testament, but we've also been given the New Testament. We will stand without an excuse. But not only that, the miracles proclaim Christ. Now, the miracles, they proclaimed Christ to the Gentile, but it was kind of fuzzy for the Gentile because they didn't have the Old Testament prophecies speaking about the miracles he would do. But the miracles that were displayed, talked about in the Old Testament, they should have known. Now, if you remember, when John the Baptist was trying to figure out, is Jesus the one? He sends his disciples to Jesus, right? And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, he's asking us, are you the one? How did Jesus respond? Do you remember? It's in Luke chapter 7. Verses 22 and 23. Listen to how Jesus responds to him. He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's from Isaiah 35, verse 5. Not only did they prophesy about his coming, they prophesied about what he would do, and Jesus fulfilled it all. They should have known him. That's the bad news. The good news, there are some who did receive him. Look at verse 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them who believed in his name. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That, that conjunction right there, that, that word but, this is a dramatic shift. You have the world that hated Christ, and suddenly you have this shift, and he points to those who received him, those who respond to the gospel message. The world's hatred of God and rejection of Christ in no way overrule or frustrates God's plan. God's plan will always move forward because he's God. This is why Jesus declared, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one that comes to me, certainly I will not cast out. And what does Jesus say? He says, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden and and I will give you rest. This is the balance, isn't it? Sometimes we get confused when we hear, well, he says he chose us from the foundation of the world and it makes some of us nervous because God would be just absolutely sovereign at that point. I got to tell you, He is sovereign. But the balance is this come. If you're burdened and heavy laden, come. If you come to Him, He'll give you rest. In no way will He cast you out. Why will you not come? Why will you harden your hearts to the only one that, that can free you from this burden? That is the plea of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Come. God, writing this, cries out, come. And yet man's heart resists that. Why will you not come this morning? Come to him. That word receive right there in the Greek, it's called lambano. And it literally means to take hold of or to grasp. It means when that plea goes out, you can grab on to Christ and he will grab on to you and will never let you go. He talks about believing in Christ's name. What what, what he means by that is all who he is. 
When you believe in Christ's name, it means that you're, you're proclaiming that you believe him as he's declared in the scriptures, that he's fully man, fully God, that he is everything that is espoused here. He is completely man. He is completely God. He has deity and humanity. And receiving him as he is, it, it infers repentance. The reality of, of a person coming to know Christ, the reality is change. If there is no repentance, if there is no change, do you know him? Because you cannot live in darkness and proclaim to know the light. They don't work. When light comes in, it expels the darkness. And if you can live in darkness and you proclaim Christ, it is not true. Do you have him? Do you know him? This is why Jesus proclaimed when he came here, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he also says, repent and believe in the gospel. When you come to know Christ, it, it changes your identity. It changes who you are. If you look at verse 12, it says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So it's not only that, that you become his servant and, and you become, um, he is your master, the relationship is a close relationship. It's a loving relationship. It's a relationship of a father to a son, a father to a daughter. God brings you into the family. That change is complete. Not only does it change your behavior, but it changes your status with God. You're no longer a child of darkness. Now you're a child of light. And you're adopted into the family of God. He does the adoption process. He brings you in. Let me read to you Romans 8, 15. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In Christ, you're adopted into the family. But the credit, again, goes to God the Father. Look at verse 13. It says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not of blood. There's no ancestry. It's like being a Jew. It doesn't mean because you're a Jew, you're automatically in God's family. Or you're born into a Christian home. That doesn't mean you're automatically in. Nor the will of the flesh. It is not your personal desire, and you cannot will somebody else in. It's not the will of man. There's no man-made religious system that's going to get you in. It is of God. It's by God's work of grace and His grace alone that saves let me share with you one scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the truth of the gospel. So many people start out their, their Christian experience understanding God's grace, but very quickly they turn it into a works-based religion and they think they need to keep and earn God's favor. But it is grace that saves you and this same grace sustains you all the way through to the end. And when you realize that you've been brought into the family of God, this is a relationship of love, and this is what motivates us to live for Christ. Two things. What does God do to fulfill his redemptive plan? He sends witnesses to announce his plan of redemption, and he calls for response to his plan of redemption. And the final one is God offers grace and truth to complete his plan of redemption. God offers grace and truth to complete his plan of redemption. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is God's grace and truth given to sinful mankind, and it sets the stage for forgiveness and redemption. Look at verses 14 through 18. 
It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, has a higher rank than I, and for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So he begins with the incarnation of Christ. The word became flesh. It literally means Jesus became human. He became physical like we are. And Jesus experienced everything that you and I experienced in every stage that you and I have experienced. He was a baby. He was a child. He was an adolescent. He was a teen. He was a young adult. He was adult. And he lived them all perfectly without sin. So he is that perfect substitute that could be, go before God. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. He was resurrected, guaranteeing eternal life. When we trust in him, we are saved and we're forgiven. It says here he dwelt. It literally means to, to live in a tent. He, he became like us. He put on a body. He put on the tent, a physical body. And he dwelt among people. He was like you and I. He had relationships with, with brothers and sisters and friends. And, and he, he was like us in every way, and yet without sin. And so without sin, they could say that they saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten. Chuck Swindoll said it like this. He said, God didn't remain abstract, having revealed himself in dreams and visions, as supernatural fire in the midst of a bush, as an otherworldly glow above the Ark of the Covenant. And he was not content to send angels in his place, but God became a man, a flesh, blood, and bone human being, who could be seen, heard, touched. The Son of God became a tangible representation of the Father in all His glory. If we have trouble understanding God the Father, we need only to look to the Son of God for all we need to know. Look to Christ if you want to know God. And He calls Him the only begotten of the Father. That Guys, begotten does not imply that Jesus was created by God. What it points to, that we're begotten, is monogesis, and it literally means unique. He is the unique one. He is the imparabled one. He is one who is so unique. Because we are all called children of God, right? If we're in Christ, he is the unique son. He is the one different than any other because he is God, the son. And he's full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. He, I mean, John runs there right away. Because Jesus is the expression of grace and truth. What is grace? Simply God's unmerited favor towards man and woman. The Schofield Bible says grace is the kindness and the love of God the Savior towards men. And these two attributes most closely connected with salvation and God's redemptive plan, they are grace and truth. Remember, Jesus is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is grace. He is God's plan, God's gift for you and I that we might know him. Have you been sealed in Christ? Do you know him? The main evidence of belief, guys, saving faith, is that you've received this grace and truth by faith and you've turned from your sin. Those who reject the truth of God's full revelation of himself and Jesus Christ are eternally lost. And we can deny Christ in two ways. One is with our words. We can verbally just say, I don't believe. But the other way is with our lives. If your life is not a testimony of Christ, you're denying him. Christ in him is grace and truth. And in Christ, grace and truth intersect. 
He is both. And he is the highest rank before all. This is why John testified about him saying that this is he of whom I said, he comes after me, he has a higher rank than I. We know that Jesus was born after John, at least six months after John. But he's higher than John. Why? Because he's God, speaking of his divinity. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, don't I need to also keep the law? I mean, isn't there something in there where it's Jesus and the law? No, this is why in verses 17 and 18 it says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given, I hope you know, not so that we could keep it, but it was given so that we would know we're sinners. Romans 3.20 says that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And when you come to the knowledge of your sin, what does it do? It causes you to run to Christ. The law was used as a tutor to drive us to Christ. And this is why we, as, as his children, can come to him because we know that he is the way, he is the truth. And Jesus says, believe me, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. He is both grace and he is truth. And he is God's redemptive plan. In him, it is completed. It's in Christ. I'm gonna close with this story. Like I said, some people kind of look at the Christian life as you start with grace, but then you have to kind of get on this works deal, right? And in this section, John has said grace upon grace. God is a God of grace, and he gives more and more grace. Again, the same grace that saves you is the same grace that sustains you. Now, guys, when I know that my little grandson Dalton's coming over to the house, he's 20 months old now, I like to make sure we're stocked up on Honey Nut Cheerios. Because I like to give Dalton a little bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. And, and what Dalton likes to do is he likes to take that bowl and then he likes to go sit on Grandma's lap and they, they rock in the rocker and, and he'll eat a few and then he'll give her one. Then he likes to get out and he likes to come over to me and give me some. And, and Dalton has no recollection that those Cheerios are ever going to run out because Papa, that's me, I have this unending supply of Cheerios for that bowl. They never run out. And when they get low, I find more Cheerios to put in there. And so Dalton has no problem giving those Cheerios to me and to Grandma and whoever else is in the house because he just knows that there's going to be more Cheerios to come. That's the way God is with his grace. Grace upon grace. He's constantly pouring out grace to us. He, he gives us the grace to know him, but now he supplies us the grace to live in him. But, and I tell you, that supply never runs out. And my deep love for my grandson, I make sure there's always Cheerios in there. How much more the loving God for us? Do you know him? Because without Christ, you don't have the grace. But in Christ, abundant grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you our hearts this morning. And thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the truth of the scriptures. I thank you for your unending grace, grace upon grace. I thank you, Lord, for that you are grace and truth and that your redemptive plan, Lord, is completed in Christ. And Father, without Jesus, there is no redemptive plan. He is the plan. So with that, Lord, I pray for those here this morning, Lord. I particularly pray for those, Father, that... Uh, 
If they're honest, they've been living in darkness, Lord. I pray for them this morning that you might free them. Allow them to come to the light of Christ. We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I please have you stand?